Okay, we're reading from James 2, which is on page 1880, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, um, starting at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Okay, good morning. It's good to see you. I hope you've had a good morning. Not too many trials on the way to, to church today. Um, if I haven't met you, my name's Michael. It'd be good to say hello and come and introduce yourself after the service today. I'm going to jump straight in with a story today. Everyone likes a good story. I'm not sure if this is a good one, but it's one from when I was at school. Um, I went to a school where there was a few Christian kids And we thought it would be a good idea to get together now and then and argue about theology, actually try and work on our faith together. And we were from different churches and sometimes there are arguments. But what we were keen on doing was uh, working out how we can share our faith 
with other kids at school. And a few people did become Christians. One guy a year above me came to our group one Friday, uh, one, I think it was a Friday lunchtime, explicitly to pay us out, but um, it happened to be the day we were trying to go through a, an explanation of Christianity. And he became a Christian, not right then, but later on. Uh, this kid, I didn't know him very well, but I remember going to the science labs in my high school, going up these external metal stairs to the labs, and there was a balcony. And this kid was in front of me with his friends. And he didn't know I was behind him going up these stairs. And I could hear them talking. And his friend said to him, well, you've become a Christian. You've been saved. You can do what you like. I didn't quite have the guts to, to yell up the stairs at these older students. Uh, you know, it's more than just that. But uh, this was the view. They said, you know, you've been saved. You've been forgiven by grace. What does it matter how you live? Uh, this kid kind of went, uh, mm, I guess so. Um, it's a question for us, isn't it, I think, and one that James addresses. What is required of those who come to Jesus in faith? We're saved by grace alone, right? What does behaviour matter? I think it's one that James addresses. I think we'll see that faith will and must produce good works in our lives, in the lives of the believer. See, once we've understood the mercy and grace of God, we want to show mercy and grace to others. If you were here uh, last week, um, we kicked off James in chapter 1, looking at, uh, I think we saw in James chapter 1 that uh, the Christian needs to persevere through trials because this produces maturity. And we're to do this asking God for his wisdom, uh, wisdom to see our trials in the way that God sees them, but also wisdom to stand. Uh, this week, we'll start to see that um, wisdom in the Christian life might mean that we don't show favoritism to others. I wonder if favoritism is the next trial of our faith coming out of chapter 1. If we, last week also I suggested that if you're looking for a key verse in this series, a good one would be James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. I'll read it for you. Uh, James says, Therefore get rid of moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In chapter 2, those who humbly accept the word planted in them, those who are doers of the word, will not show favoritism. Have a look in chapter 2. It will be there most of the sermon. In chapter 2, we see in verse 1, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Why? What's the deal with favoritism. If I ask you to sit down now and just jot down, okay, what are the top 10 sins confronting the Christian church? Would favoritism even make the rank? I don't know. Certainly it did for James. Uh, favoritism was right up there. Glory, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. For James, it was completely inappropriate, incongruous with the faith. Well, what is favoritism? Is this where, um, you know, you rock up a church, uh, a guy comes in, he's got a really nice floral tie. So he's like, well, he has got a good tie, I'm going to sit next to him. Is, is that what's going on? Maybe. What is favouritism? Is it just showing preferential treatment of one person over the other? What is the temptation to show favouritism for us? 
Um, we're going to put the application right up the front of the sermon today, uh, just in case you fall asleep at the halfway point. At least you've heard that what we are to do as believers. See, James creates a hypothetical example of favoritism for his audience one that I think cuts very close to the bone for them. And you'll see it in verses 2 to 4. I'll read it for you. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold rings and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor, oh, you stand there, or you sit at my feet, have you not discriminated against among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James says it's completely inappropriate. It's completely inappropriate. Christians, those who have come to Christ in faith, cannot make snap value judgments of others and start treating people differently just based on our own criteria for valuing them. We can't look at those around us and start pegging people as higher or lower on our internal scale of worth or value. Why? Because something we do all the time, isn't it? It's very human. We, we're always assessing and judging and comparing people, if not because of their uh, financial status, it might be something else. So here's, here's another story. So Jen and I, my wife Jen, driving home from a, a venue, an event, and on the way, you know, we've met a new person at this, at this event, and we're driving home, and I turn to Jen in the car and say, well, they were different, weren't they? And Jen, being much wiser than me, turned and said, Michael, we're all different in our own way. To which I reply, no, I'm the standard by which normalcy is measured. You know, we, we judge all the time. It's very human. But for James, it's inappropriate. His original audience struggled with financial pressure. So their temptation was to judge according to wealth. How might we show uh, favoritism? Do we welcome people equally? I wonder if you're ever tempted to do this. A new family comes to church and look at them and go, ooh, they are exactly the kind of people that would fit really well here. They're the kind of people that God wants with us. Um, we need to welcome them really well. You know, it won't be too long and they'll even be able to fill up some gaps in our rostering. You know, are we tempted to, to just make these kind of value, these values of people uh, based on what we see? I wonder what's the criteria that we, we use to place people on this mental scale of worth. Uh, is it whether or not they've got a uni degree? Is it their relative attractiveness? You know, do they work out? Um, is it their dress sense? Is it that they just make us feel comfortable, they like us? What about those who are different to us? How do we go welcoming someone who at morning tea just lights up and has a cigarette? Uh, it might, for some of us, you know, create a bit of an issue, but they're people valued by God. What about someone with English as a second language? You might have to work a bit harder at communication, but they're people valued by God. What about someone wearing high-vis clothes to church, and not just as a kid's talk character? Um, what about someone who's same-sex attracted? They're people valued by God just like us. Um, I was chatting with a friend uh, this week and said, well, how do you reckon we value people and show favoritism? And he said, well, I reckon uh, the first question people ask when they meet a new person can give it away. 
What's the first question often we ask someone we've just met? What do you do? What do you do for a crust, right? And at one level, it's appropriate to get to know people, and that's part of what occupies the time. So what do you do for work? It's something you might want to get to know. But it's a very worldly thing, isn't it? If, If we're kind of asking people questions to try and work out how we can peg them uh, how we can value them. Are you worth getting to know? Uh, apparently, it's a very Adelaide thing to do, is to ask where you went to school. I don't know if you agree with this. Uh, I chatted to someone, um, and I said, oh, where, do you, where did you go to school? And he goes, ah, uh, I went to school in Melbourne, so you can't value me, or you can't judge me according to my school. Uh, it's interesting. I didn't know we did this, but apparently it's an Adelaide thing to do. We've got to be careful. How are we making snap judgments of people based on these external factors? Judging others is a very human thing to do, but the gospel doesn't allow us to make snap value judgments of others. To show favoritism, James says, is to discriminate among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So, James says, don't show favoritism or don't favour the wealthy over the poor. It gives a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, he says, don't you know that God's values flip the world's values upside down? Who are you to judge the wealthy over the poor? These are the poor are the ones that are incredibly rich as they inherit the kingdom of God. How can you value them as less than the earthly wealthy? And secondly, James says, don't you know it's the wealthy who are dragging you off the court and blaspheming the name of Jesus? Yet you show special attention to the wealthy and discriminate against the poor. Still, I reckon... What is so bad about favoritism? We've kind of seen it's a human thing to do. What is the deal? James equates favoritism with murder and adultery. In verse 11. But hang on. One minute I reserve a seat for the man with a nice tie. Now you're saying I might as well have murdered someone? Seriously? Is that right? How can James say that? Well, he draws on the teachings of Jesus uh, in, this, in this sense. So if you look in verse 10, uh, James says, uh, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one, just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Does that sound familiar? This is, what, this is straight out of the teachings of Jesus um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. See, James draws a lot on... The Sermon on the Mount and his sermon. It's like one of his keys texts. He draws a lot on the teaching of Jesus in, in, in the whole book of James, but particularly in chapter 2. Still, I reckon, which one of the Ten Commandments was it that said, Thou shalt not commit favoritism? Well, James says, uh, when you commit favoritism, you're breaking the royal law. If you just back up again to verses 8 and 9 in chapter 2. It says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. Clearly, favouritism and discrimination is not loving. Love your neighbour as yourself is called the royal law. Why is it royal? Well, this is the, the law that Jesus said is the greatest commandment. And King Jesus, it's a royal Law In Matthew 22, verse 36, Jesus has asked this question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, this is Matthew 22, verse 37, He says, 
Love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So uh, favoritism breaks the royal commandment. To judge people as better or worse isn't loving. And as Jesus said, and James reminds us, once you've broken one law, well, you're a law breaker. It has been broken. So this is how he equates it to adultery and murder, saying, you know, you, you know you, you're judging others, but actually you've broken the law. Whether it's murder, whether it's adultery, whether it's love others, you've broken the law. That's how he equates it. To judge others as better or worse than us isn't loving. There is an irony here, um, I think. James says, by showing favoritism... You are discriminating amongst yourselves and becoming judges of the evil thoughts in verse 4. And in so doing, you've broken the heart of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in verse 8. And don't you know that you're going to be judged by that law? So in the act of showing favoritism and judging others, you've broken the law and you'll be judged. See, instead of judging someone, pegging them as greater or of lesser worth, you should see yourself as someone who sits alongside them under the judgment and mercy of God. I think this is the antidote to favoritism. We, like them, need the mercy of God. How can we value them as better or worse than ourselves or someone else? Have a look at James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom... Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the same idea that James picks up in chapter 4, a couple of pages over. In James 4 verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Do you see the point? How can you judge someone when... You equally have broken the law. Sit under the law together with them as someone needing the mercy of God. A while back, um, a few of us here I know went to a talk in this room by a guy called Sam Albury, who is a guy who was teaching us about how we are to love and, I guess, care for people with the same-sex attraction. Uh, In the talk... Sam related a story, which was impacting for a few of us, I think for me it was, and that is, um, so Sam was saying that he was teaching pastors about the need to care for people with same-sex attraction, and a guy came up to him, I think he said it was a pastor actually of a church, came up to him and said, I get it, I get it Sam, but how can you just stand to be with these people? (laughs) Sam's answer was, well it's easy. I just remember the depths and depravity of my own sin. I see we're placing ourselves under the law with people. Our faith, our view of ourselves through God's eyes, shapes the way we view others. Faith changes the way we speak and act in verse 12. How are we going to do this? How are we going to stop showing favoritism? Well, faith changes the way we speak in act. See, faith is to come before God humbly, knowing that on our own we stand condemned by the law, 
And it's only by the mercy of God that we stand triumph. The faith that we have shapes us and it stops us from showing favoritism. How can we judge someone as better or worse than us if we believe that we, like them, need the mercy of God? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Faith reorientates us to God and his values and his view of others. Faith grows deeds. James says, as in verse 18 of chapter 2, James says, I will show you my faith by my deeds. How does that work? How does our faith show up in our actions? I'm going to give you a couple examples from James's primary text, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So this is how I, I think our faith shapes our deeds. Uh, you see it really clearly in other books of the Bible as well, but let's go to the Sermon on the Mount like James does. So here's uh, four examples of how faith shapes deeds. So one, our faith holds that we are forgiven freely by Christ. Our action is to forgive others. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.12, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay, two, our faith holds that we've been shown mercy Our action is to show mercy to others. In the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Okay, third, our faith holds that our Heavenly Father gives us good gifts. We saw this in chapter 1. Our action is to pray. We see in Matthew 7, 7 to 12, we're told, ask, seek, knock, persist in prayer, How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who love him? Okay, and four, our faith holds that in Christ um, we have been taken from death to life, from darkness to light. Our action is to live in the light. In Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your, heavenly, your Father in heaven. See, faith and deeds are connected. Uh, in 1 John it says, you know, we love because God first loved us. Our faith and deeds are connected. James chapter 2, verse 14 says, what good, is it, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Well, the answer to the rhetorical question would have clearly been, no, faith like that is not faith. Faith is never alone. Faith always grows legs. In verse 17 of James 2, it says, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. So at this point, uh, it's like James jumps up onto his arguing Podium. He's going to have a debate and he, he generates for himself, he conjures up an imaginary opponent and he starts arguing. He says in verse 18, the imaginary opponent might say, but someone will say, oh, you have faith, oh, I have deeds. Well, can faith and deeds be separated like this? No, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. See, I think it's like James is saying, well, you think, you think intellectual assent to, uh, to right ideas you think intellectual assent into right ideas as truth, and, and that's enough? Well, even demons believe in God and, and shudder, implied, maybe you should shudder, because faith without actions is not faith at all. 
You can't separate faith and actions. James uh, calls his imaginary opponent a foolish person. In Bible study um, this week, we got a bit of a chuckle over this. Someone had a translation um, in Bible study that swapped out foolish person for empty fellow. And um, we thought it was a bit amusing, imagine trying to try this insult out during the week, you know, you empty fellow. I reckon um, uh, the NIV perhaps is a bit more like our Australianism, so I can imagine being in a pub in Australia after a footy game and hearing someone in the background yell out, you fool! Um, Perhaps in England, because this was a very English translation, you empty fellow. Perhaps in an English pub post-soccer game, you know, you hear the, the soccer crowd there and, and someone yells out, you empty fellow. It's very proper. Um, look, if you're in England and you go to a pub and you want to try this insult out, I would just recommend doing what James does, actually, in creating an imaginary opponent. It's probably safer. What is it? Uh, Why can James call his opponent an empty fellow? Um, Well, faith, when it's not accompanied by works, well, it's empty. It's hollow faith. Uh, It might be correct theologically. Um, It might go tick to the theological boxes. But if it doesn't do anything, it's, it's useless. It's hollow. It's empty, it's lifeless, it's like a body without a spirit. This is the last verse in this chapter, Uh, verse 26 says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's like just the corpse on the ground. Uh, It's just intellectual tick without doing anything in our lives, a dead body without a spirit. Faith without works is just unanimated. It's like actually going up to a beggar on the street, isn't it? James gives this example. You go up to this poor beggar on the street and you say, bless you, go home, be well fed, be warm, may God go with you, and then you turn away and do nothing. Like it's been, it's pointless. It doesn't do anything for the person. You might as well be um, like the people in that parable of the Good Samaritan who see the, the battered and bruised man and just cross over and those religious, pious people just walked away on the other side of the road. It didn't translate to loving their neighbour. How are we going? James gives uh, his readers two examples from the Old Testament. Remember a fairly Jewish audience that James is writing to? Two examples of people who combined faith and deeds. Uh, One is Abraham and the other is Rahab. So Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, of the Jewish religion, Abraham believed God and he was obedient. Remember, he was prepared to offer his son Isaac to God. In verse 22, James says, Oh, you see that his faith, Abraham's faith, and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And then there's Rahab. Rahab was the first Gentile, the non-Jewish convert into the Jewish faith. Um, And... What did she do? Well, Rahab recognized Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the one true God, and so she acted. She offered protection and hospitality to those Israelite spies. Her faith, let God, this God of Israel with rule, led to an action, and she was included in Israel and God's family. James says in verse 24, I think something that often trips us up. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. So 
For some of us, we might read that and go, warning bills, is this heresy? It seems to contradict with so much that we're taught, especially the, the teachings of the Apostle Paul. So what's going on? How is this a, a contradiction in Scripture? Well, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 to 9, very clearly, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It's a gift from God, so that not by works, so that no one can boast. I mean, we've used this as a, as a key verse, as a memory verse for kids uh, just last year. What's going on? Well, I think this is a classic example of the risk we can fall into when we pull verses out from here and here uh, without looking at their context. See, Paul and James are addressing different issues and they're different circles of debate, they're different circles of argument. Paul was writing predominantly to a Jewish audience that has come to accept Christ as their Savior. So, so I'll say it again. Paul was writing primarily to a Gentile audience, those non-Jewish people who've come to Jesus in faith. And the idea of, of these works was a real uh, struggle for them. So Paul's basically addressing people who might be thinking this way. Look, I've accepted Christ. I was a Gentile. I've accepted Christ. And, and, and now... Um, do I, what do I have to look? Do I have to look Jewish to be acceptable by this Jewish Messiah? Do I need to take on the outward signs of Judaism? Do I need these Jewish works like circumcision, food laws, and, and these customs and religious practice? Do I have to do the works of Judaism to be acceptable to Christ? See, they're, they're nervous about their position before Christ, and Paul wants to give them great assurance and say, hey, no, Paul says with certainty, no, you don't have to do these works to be included by Christ. It's by grace alone. It's not by works. You can't earn God's favor. James would agree with that, I think. You don't come to God with good works. You come to Him in faith. Um, but James is writing to a predominantly Jewish believers, believers who perhaps were arrogant about their position based on their uh, theology, their, their understanding of who Jesus is. Perhaps they were presumptuous, who needed to be corrected. Um, salvation does come by grace alone, but that grace always is accompanied by an obedience to the king. You can't say, I come to faith by saying I submit to Jesus as king, I understand that, but then that has no translation to our, our action, it works out. Okay, to these people James writes, yes, you're, you're not made right by faith alone, faith is never alone, faith necessarily, absolutely, inevitably will be accompanied by action. I think James and Paul agree when you take their arguments in their original contexts. Um, see, when we turn to God for the first time, of, of, course we come, of course we come to Him as empty fellows. We, we bring nothing to the table of our holy, perfect God. It's all done for us in Christ. And of course, when we accept it, by faith, the miraculous transformation that we have in Christ. When we accept by faith the undeserved forgiveness, this inclusion in Christ like we celebrated in communion, this unconditional love, this grace which saves, of course when we accept that, 
it will follow, it will fall before our King, Christ, in submission, love and obedience. How could we not? How could we not understand the love and mercy of God in our lives? Allow that to affect the way we live. Of course it goes together. Uh, John Calvin was a famous Protestant reformer, um, and this, this whole issue of works was big for the reformers. They were working against a, a Roman Catholic church at the time who was insisting on works for salvation, like giving money to the church. And Calvin writes, well, yeah, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Faith always produces works. The grace of God at work in our lives teaches us to love others not showing favoritism, but seeing others like us as people who need to sit under the justice and mercy of God. The Apostle Paul doesn't oppose good works. In Titus chapter 2, I'll put it up here on the screen. So in Titus chapter 2, 11 and 14, uh, Paul writes what I think actually sums up much of the argument of James uh, in, that we've been looking at. So I'm going to finish by reading to you this. Um, feel free to text questions today to the line, and if we have time, we'll get to them. Uh, let me read this, and I'll finish with this. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, so the grace in our lives at work in us, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good if you have trouble doing good works Keep going back to the grace and mercy of God, allowing it to shape us to live and act in a way that responds to and lives out the work he's done in our hearts.